Good morning. We are very glad that you are here. You've already heard that once, and I want you to hear it from the guy who's preaching. We really count it a privilege to worship together, to uh, be encouraged by the word, to, to go to this um, every week. And so um, if this is your first time with us, we would like to encourage you to fill out this little card. They're in the backs of the pews. It's uh, a welcome card. And the top part has information about what we believe and who we are and, and uh, the kind of people we want to be as, as we uh, uh, are the church. And then on the bottom is a part for you to put your information on there so that we can get in contact with you. If you're looking for a church home, we want to help you make a wise decision. And if you're interested in particulars here at this body, we want to give you that information. So please, if you can, if it's your first time with us, we welcome you. We want you to fill that out and drop it in the, the uh, satchel that will come around during the the offering. That's not trash for your uh, Lord's Supper. That is um, for uh, offering in this. So if you could do that, that would be wonderful. We invite you to that, and we're glad you're here this morning. I'm going to pray, and then we are going to dive into uh, the book of Romans again this week. So let's pray. Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. Your greatness is unsearchable. As we just sang, there is no one like you. There has never been one like you. Lord, we are your servants. And we come before you humbly this morning, understanding that we wouldn't even have a right to pray if not for what you achieved for us in Christ, if not for providing a way outside of us. So we pray uh, humbly this morning. First, I want to pray for FBC Aberfoyle. Um, as Morris Bean is there, um, preaching this morning. Um, I'm thankful for the opportunity that you have given him, and I pray that you would allow him to speak truth uh, with clarity. I pray that their time in corporate worship is, is enjoyable and, and is, is focused on you and that they're worshiping wholeheartedly in spirit and in truth. I'm thankful for the relationship that he has with the pastor there and that over the years they have gotten to have mutual encouragement and iron sharpening iron. Lord, I uh, just pray for all of the local churches across the nation this morning. There, there's going to be a lot of um, people who are confused, upset, even angry, uh, sad. And I pray that you would provide leaders, um, pastors, shepherds uh, who lead well, who encourage with the word, who don't give a bunch of our own opinions, but stick to what you've told us. Lord, we pray for our local government. Um, as we do every week, we pray for them as they make decisions for this particular community. And uh, we also pray uh, for state and for federal governments as well this morning. Um, as they make decisions, we pray that you would guide them in it. We pray that Christians in those positions would seek your face and, uh, and be encouraged to do what you want them to do. Lord, we thank you for this time this morning. We pray that you would guide it as you see fit. We trust you, Lord. We pray that you would watch over us, encourage us, open our minds and our hearts to hear from your word. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. I feel like my microphone is going boom, boom every time I say something. Can we bring it down a little bit? I usually preach louder than I pray, so I didn't want to get all crazy. Um, so much can change in one short week. So much can change in one short week. I'm not going to lie. I, I feel the need to stand up here, say something massively profound, you know, battle cry. Um, but we're going to take an approach this morning that may not be what you expect. I, I feel the need to express to everyone here 
especially if you weren't here last week, that we started Romans 1 last week. It's important for you to understand that. This is our second week in Romans 1. I tell you that because I don't want you to think that we went to the book of Romans, particularly Romans 1, as a response or a reaction to the Supreme Court decision that was passed down on Friday. Romans 1 is where the Lord has us. In, in the Lord's sovereignty and in his wisdom, he has us in this book. And I'm really thankful for God's timing. It's where the Lord has us at this time, this local body at this time. And it's, in fact, one of four books that this body is currently moving through, um, through expository preaching. Interestingly, we will acknowledge up front that the laws pertaining to this chapter have changed since last week. This is significant because it's unprecedented, meaning it's never happened in human history. Homosexuality is nothing new. And as I say that, I want you all to know I'm aware that our kids are in with us this morning, that our children are here. And I'm going to be utterly mindful of it in everything we engage in Romans 1. And I'm not going to stray from the text. So homosexuality is not anything new. However, redefining marriage is. So some things have changed since last Sunday. But some things have not. The gospel has not. Last week I shared a quote um, at the beginning of the sermon talking about this kind of preaching where we move through the Bible verse by verse book by book. And as we move through it, it's what we call expository preaching. And Tim Keller, the quote that I shared was, expository preaching enables God to set the agenda for your Christian community. So while it might be tempting to skip to the end of Romans, where it talks more about particular cultural things at hand, while it might be tempting to go to verse 18 or verse 21 and take a break from our regularly scheduled programming to address the legalization of gay marriage, we're going to stick to the original plan. We're going to go to the next verse. And what we're going to do is we're going to go to the next verse, and we're going to see how it speaks to us where we are. Because I firmly believe that our Lord is more faithful than any of us could ever be. And so we're going to trust him in that design this morning. I can't one week say we're going to do expository preaching and stick to the text and then, and then stray and, and pick and choose and skip around. You can't do that. It would be dishonest of me. And so we're going to go to the next verse, which happens to be verse 1. Last week we began the book of Romans, and most of the sermon was background and context. In short, in exploring Paul's background, Rome's background, and the church in Rome's background, we explored that, and we want we to see what happened in the years leading up to this letter to the church in Rome. Who's this dude who's writing to the church in Rome? What's going on in Rome? What would the church in, B, in Rome be like? Who made that up? When did it start? And we went through all that last week, so 90% of the sermon was background and context, but what we found was that Paul has some significant ambitions and goals in ministry, and none of it can be accomplished unless Paul is first committed to the gospel. His commitment to the church, his commitment to the community, his commitment to the Jews, his commitment to the Gentiles, to Rome, to Spain, to the poor in Jerusalem, all had to be preceded by commitment to the gospel. Otherwise, None of it would work. Today, we are going to consider in greater depth what it means to be committed to the gospel. We're going to do this by looking closely at what Paul says in the first line of his introduction to the church in Rome. And here's what I want you to look for as I read Romans 1. If you're not already there, go ahead and turn to Romans 1. And we're going to read the first seven verses. I would encourage you in your own devotions to read the whole first chapter at some point this week if you haven't already. 
But we're going to read the first seven verses. And here's what I want you to look for as I read through those verses. I want you to look for four things. So pay attention because I want you to look for them as I read this to you. Look for four things. The four things I want you to look for are any references or inferences to creation. And then as I read and as we go through this sermon and, and expose the text, I want you to look for any indications or details related to the fall. And then I want you to be looking for anything related to redemption. And then I want you to look for anything related to consummation. So you have some work to do with me. Don't just sit there and just listen. Use your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, we have some blue ones under the chairs or in the backs of the chairs. No, they're under the chairs. And you you can use that. Take that home. That's yours. It's a a gift from us. But we're going to use our Bibles this morning. And as we do, I want you to be looking for details related to creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Because we're going to come back to that at the end of the service. So look with me at Romans 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was descended from David, according to the flesh, and he was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. From last week, we remember that Paul's introduction, Paul's identity, Paul's plan for ministry was the gospel. The first seven verses explain what he means when he says gospel, and these three phrases that he uses are going to shape our outline for the morning. I want it to be real clear. Everybody waking up, our lights are a little dim. If we need to bring them up, we can. It feels very somber in here. We're going to talk about what it means to be people who who were created to be committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, to the best news that this world has ever heard. That's what we're engaging this morning, and I hope you are fired up about what that means and how incredible it is that we have the best news that anyone has ever heard. We're going to engage it, and I want you to be ready. I want you to use your minds. I want you to use your hearts. That's what's been prayed for for you up front. We have a good God that we serve, and we're going to look at his good message that he gave to us and what it means to be gospel people. So the first three things for three phrases that he uses that give us our outline for the morning. First is that he is a servant of Christ Jesus. Second, he's called to be an apostle. And third, he's set apart for the gospel of God. Last week, a few of you asked, what are you talking about when you say committed to the gospel? That's kind of a broad phrase. I had some questions immediately afterwards. I had some conversations through the week. What do you mean when you say committed to the gospel? Are you talking about just the part about Jesus? Are you talking about being committed to to my salvation? Are you talking about reading your Bible? Are you talking about evangelism? What What are you referring to? And those are really good questions. And these three things we can utilize this morning to begin to understand what it means to be committed to the gospel. So number one, if you're writing notes, write number one. If you're not writing notes, you should become a note taker today. I encourage it. It's really helpful. I can't remember anything if I don't write notes down. And you're supposed to, what the word says is you you listen to someone preach, you listen to someone teach, and then it says, think over what I say, and the Lord will give you understanding. 
So that means that what you get from me this morning is not enough for you this week. There's time where you're going to have to think over what I say. And as you think over that, our Lord will give you understanding that you didn't have when you walked through the doors at the end of this service. So take some notes. Number one, for Paul, being committed to the gospel means understanding that he is a servant of Christ. For Paul, being committed to the gospel means understanding that he is a servant of Christ. We're starting, I'm saying for Paul on purpose, because when we study our Bibles, we observe what it says, we look at it, and then we have an interpretation, and then we figure out how we apply it to our own lives. Well, to figure out how it applies to our lives, we have to figure out what it says first. You have to see what it says before you figure out what it says to you. Too often we open our Bibles and we say, okay, now I'm going to do this. And we don't spend any time actually considering what it says before we consider what it says to us. So we're going to spend a majority of the time this morning considering what does the text say. And then we will get to what it says to us, the application part. For Paul, being committed to the gospel means understanding he's a servant of Christ. In explaining who he is, Paul starts with whose he is. Now, if not for Ben stealing my thunder two weeks ago, that would have been really profound. Y'all be going, ooh, ah, who's, I see, what you did there, yes. He starts with who he belongs to. Ben explained this with clarity in a sermon two weeks ago, and all of our sermons are online. I encourage you to listen to it, because it was good. So I forgive him, because it was appropriate for Ephesians, and Paul said a lot of the same things in the opening. But what I want us to see is that, remember, Paul's presenting his credentials through which he hopes the Jews and Gentiles in the church will trust him. Remember, we saw this dynamic last week where Paul, one of Paul's ambitions, he's got a lot of significant ambitions and goals. One of his ambitions is uh, to reconcile Jews and Gentiles who are more different than anyone, any two people sitting in this room. And the problem is he, he needs to be one who can reconcile and be a peacemaker, but neither the Jews or the Gentiles really trust Paul. That's a problem as a conflict reconciliator. I don't even know if that's the right word, but it felt good. That's a problem. If you're going in to sit with two people to help them through their differences and neither of those people trust you, that's, that's what we call a hurdle. And so he has a significant hurdle with the Jews and the Gentiles because they don't trust him. Because the Jews are saying, you were a Jew and you turned. You, you are a traitor. And then the Gentiles are saying, hey, I remember you. You persecuted my brothers and sisters in the early church after Pentecost. And so they don't trust him. And so Paul is presenting his credentials to which he hopes the Jews and Gentiles in the church will trust him so he can do the work that is, that is at hand. And he starts by saying to the, this to them. This is what he's saying to them. Hey, guys, I'm no longer my own. I'm no longer my own. Guys, I'm no longer calling the shots. I have been purchased as a bondservant, and I belong to Christ. Paul is appealing to them. He's saying, guys, you need to know that the governors in Rome, they're not calling the shots for me anymore. The Pharisees, my Pharisaical brothers and sisters, they're not calling the shots for me anymore. Me, one who excelled in all the things that I was taught previously, I'm not calling the shots anymore. Guys, I want y'all to know I don't belong to myself anymore. I don't own me anymore. I belong to God. That's his appeal to them for trust, for unity. And you can picture the Jews and Gentiles reading these words and saying, good, because Saul was a jerk, right? You can picture them reading these words and saying, good, because Saul was uh, not a servant of Christ before. In fact, Saul 
persecuted servants of Christ before. And we were not big fans of Saul. But if Saul is now Paul, and he had an experience with Jesus who is indeed risen, then this is something, if he's a servant and we're servants of Christ, then this is something that we now have in common with one another. So this is part of his appeal. He's saying, guys, I'm committed to the gospel to do this work. And part of that commitment is knowing I am no longer calling the shots. I am a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul talks about this servant status in a handful of different places. Turn over to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Here again, Paul, the old broken record, is talking about the gospel. And he's trying to figure out why they aren't sticking to the gospel and what's going on here in the church in Galatia. He's explaining the centrality of it and the need to be committed to it. So in Galatians 1, I'm going to read verses 6 through 10. And it says this. Paul says to those believers in the church, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. I'm astonished. Not that there is a different gospel, but that there are some who trouble you and want to just distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, still in, insinuating that he used to be, his aim used to be pleasing men, be, being someone who is a people pleaser. If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. This was written about nine years before the letter was written to the church in Rome and 14 years before it was the letter written by Paul to the church in Ephesus. And what we have to see, Paul accomplished a lot, right? We can look at Paul and say, that wasn't a lazy dude. That wasn't an undisciplined guy. That wasn't a timid guy. That was a guy who accomplished a ton for the forward movement of the kingdom. And what we see over the span of a, at least a decade and a half with just these three little details is the message is the same. Stop abandoning the gospel. That's his message. Stop turning from it. Stop thinking you have a better plan. Stop being embarrassed by it. Stop turning from it. Without the gospel, it will never work. He's addressing those. Did you see what he said? He said, some have taken the gospel and they just twisted it to mean a little something. That's what happened in the garden. They twisted God's words to make it mean a little bit something that it didn't actually originally mean. And that was the fall of man in the garden. That's why everyone in here is a sinner in need of redemption. And so here he's saying, don't, don't turn from the gospel. If someone preaches to you a gospel where they take it and they change it just a little bit to make it what they want it to, to say, to fit their preferences let that person be accursed and do not listen to them. Stop turning from the gospel. Paul's a broken record and it's a good broken record. You shouldn't get tired of it. But he, he reveals something else in these statements. It's part of the first point about him understanding he's a servant of Christ and this is the point. You cannot be a servant of Christ and seek the approval of man. It's part of what our text delivers to us today. You cannot be a servant of Christ and seek 
the approval of man. Now, that does not mean that you are seeking the disapproval or you need to be a loud, obnoxious jerk who spouts things on Facebook inappropriately. Not that that's happened this week. But you're not seeking approval. That doesn't mean you're seeking being an arrogant person who doesn't listen or an arrogant person who just shares your opinions. You just don't seek approval of man. It says what it says. You cannot be a servant of Christ and seek the approval of man. Here's why. This is why. Pay attention to this. Here's why. In our commitment to the gospel, we're going to be sharing it with people who are already very committed to other things. Right? Why do Christians act so surprised about this? When we're sharing the gospel with people, we're generally, unless they're gospel-believing Christians that are already brothers and sisters in Christ, they're generally already going to be committed to other things than the gospel. Why do we get so bent out of shape by this? Blows my mind. I took five minutes to share the Roman road, and you did not accept Jesus. I'm offended. Really? It's going to take more than that. They're committed to other things. It's going to take more conversation. It's going to take more love and encouragement because they're committed to other things. And if we're seeking their approval, this is what happens. If we're seeking their approval, we will find ourselves committed to their priorities, not the gospel. That's how it plays out if you're not first committed to the gospel. If you are sharing the gospel with people who are committed to something other than the gospel, if your goal is to gain their approval, inevitably you are going to be committed to whatever they're committed to to gain that approval if that's your goal. You will have to adopt their priorities as your own priorities. That's how people running for an office get approval. Approval is marked by votes. Vote for me. I'm your guy. I, your priorities are my priorities. What you want, the new streets you want, the education reform that you want, the laws that you want, you vote for me, I'm your guy, your priorities are my priorities, and so vote for me and I will represent you well as your servant. But it's different for Christians. Your priorities are God's priorities. That's what it means to be committed to the gospel. We're servants of Christ who aim to represent God, not culture. We're servants of Christ who aim to represent our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because we're his servants. He owns us. That's what Paul's getting at. I'm owned by God, and I need to represent and serve him well. 1 Corinthians 7.23 states, you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. You were bought with a price. You belong to Jesus. So the encouragement is don't turn around and be someone else's slave. You are a slave of Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Part of this picture of redemption is Someone who gives a reason for the hope they have with gentleness and with respect. Bold, but not arrogant. Turn back to Romans 1. We'll be in Romans 1 and Galatians 1 a couple times this morning. Turn back to Romans 1. Paul believes he's a servant of Christ. The second thing is for Paul, what the text says... 
being committed to the gospel means understanding his calling as an apostle. As an apostle. Now, that's a word that a lot of us have probably heard a lot over the years, but I think some of us, if we're honest, have questions. What is that? What is an apostle? What's the difference between an apostle and a disciple? What is the difference between an apostle and just a follower of Jesus today and, and in that time? What we need to understand is that this was Paul's calling, not ours. No one in this room is called to be an apostle. No one in this room is called to be an apostle. This was Paul's calling, not ours. That's why it's important to look what the text says before you say, what does it say to me? Because you could read this and say, Paul, sir, in Christ, he's called to be an apostle. All right, today I'm an apostle. And that's a wrong application. You jumped to the wrong point. You got there way too quickly. So what are you supposed to do? Well, let's look at this. This was Paul's calling, not ours. In fact, most scholars agree that given the timing of his apostolic call, Paul was likely the last of the apostles. So what is an apostle? One scholar states, I'm quoting scholars because they're smarter than me. In Paul's mind, to be an apostle was to be a person who had seen Jesus Christ risen from the dead. That happened to Paul on Damascus Road, which we're going to look at in a minute. So to be an apostle means you saw Jesus Christ risen from the dead so that you can give a first-hand testimony. And who has been commissioned and authorized by Christ to represent him and speak for him and provide a foundation for his church through true and authoritative teaching. So to be an apostle means I saw Jesus and Jesus told me to go and do his work from his mouth that was alive, not dead, resurrected. That's an apostle. So let's take a look at Paul's calling. Turn over to Acts chapter 9. Acts is right before the book of Romans. Acts chapter 9 is right before Acts chapter 10. Acts 9, I'm going to read verses 1 through 6 to explain, so we can see this is not Paul here. So a lot of our New Testament is written by Paul because of his apostolic calling, but this is someone else recounting Paul's apostolic calling. It's not him talking, it's someone else. I'm 99% sure of it. So in verses 1 through 6, it says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Remember, that's what happened. All the Jews from Rome, went to Jerusalem for the annual celebration of Pentecost, which was a celebration of the giving of the law, and they went, and while they were there, the Spirit descends upon them, people start preaching about Jesus, and the church, the Christian church, was born at Pentecost. And right after that Christian church was born, you might think, oh, well, that must have been just wonderful to be a part of the first Christian church. What a privilege that would have been. They were immediately persecuted, particularly violently, by a guy named Saul. And so, in Acts, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. This is who he was. He was not a good person. He was not gospel material from some of our standards. He was a bad guy, and he's breathing threats against them. He's ripping men and women from their homes, imprisoning them, and threatening them, speaking murder to them as they go. Man, he, he didn't want to just get rid of people. He wanted to terrify them because of their belief in Jesus says, he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. What that means is that Paul's goal, still Saul, not yet Paul, his goal was to go to their places of worship and drag them out if they belonged to Jesus. That's what he wanted to do. Essentially, Paul was a terrorist. Saul was a terrorist. 
wanted to drag them out, imprison them, threaten them, shake them up. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. I mean, look at this shift that takes place here. As he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, a bright light shines around him on this road to Damascus. He's going to take care of business. Bright light. He falls to the ground, and he hears a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Me. Why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Jesus showed up at Damascus Road when Paul was on on his way to kill Jesus' children. And look what Jesus says to to Saul. It's pretty, pretty shocking. He says, rise and enter the city. You'll be told what you're to do. (laughs) That sounds like a boss speaking, right? (laughs) You get up, you go there, and you'll be told what to do. Oh, it looks like Paul's under some new management. We just saw a little shift there, right? Get up, go to the city, and you'll be told what to do. This was his apostolic call. Now, it's good for us to see that. Now, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. to see Paul's account of this. It's so good when we can see an account written by someone else and then an account by the person who experienced it. It just continues to affirm the gospel. It continues to affirm the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to start in verse 3. This is Paul. He's no longer Saul. He kind of needed a name change. People didn't like Saul, Christians in particular. And 15.3 says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then Jesus appeared to the Twelve, and then Jesus appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. For I am least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, the grace of God that is with me. I mean, you hear humility there. You hear boldness, but you hear just lots of humility. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach the gospel, and you believed. So Paul sees himself as bought. Paul sees himself as owned. Paul sees himself as called. He wants the church in Rome to know that he is not appointing himself to this work. When he's writing and making this appeal about to go to Rome, he wants the Jews and Gentiles there to know, hey, Yes, I used to be Saul, I'm now Paul, I'm owned by God, and what I want y'all to know is I'm not appointing myself to this work. I would never endeavor to appoint myself to such honorable work. 
I was appointed by Jesus. In the same way that their forefathers in the faith were called, men like Noah, men like Moses, Paul sees his work as from God, and he wants them to know he's not there to do his own work, because his own work was bad and violent. Turn back to Romans 1. Our third point. There's only three. You're doing wonderful. Kids, y'all are doing awesome too. For Paul, being committed to the gospel means seeing himself as set apart for the gospel. Isn't that what we just talked about? It's how, is he being redundant here? Does he, did he, in the first line, did he just run out of good stuff to say, so he's just saying the same thing in different ways? No, he's saying what he's saying very specifically because it means something different than what he said before. He sees himself as set apart for the gospel. His intro reveals himself as bought, owned, called, and set apart, in case you're keeping score. Is he again referring to his call on Damascus Road or something else? When was he set apart? And he is referring to something else. Turn to Galatians 1 again. I told you we'll be Galatians, Rome, Galatians 1, Romans 1. And we're going to go back to Galatians 1 again. We got visuals again this week in case y'all didn't notice. Just wanted to put that out there. You're welcome. Galatians 1. We're going to pick up where we, where we left off. Let's look at verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. Again, Paul with the gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So it makes him an apostle. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism. And listen, listen to who he describes himself as. He doesn't try to trick them. He's very honest. He says, you remember my former life in Judaism. How I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. He, he was indoctrinated. You see that? So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But look what happens. But when... He who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. First of all, Paul wants the Jews and Gentiles to know this is, such, so, this is so important. When he tells them he was set apart by God, what we see from these verses and the verses in Romans is he wants the Jews and Gentiles and the church in Rome to know that his call to the gospel ultimately trumped his original hatred of the gospel. Do you see how awesome that is? Do you see what's being made in that statement? Paul's call to the gospel trumped his hatred of the gospel. Is anyone beyond the reach of the hope that exists in the gospel? If you have family members who hate the gospel, you don't write them off. Paul didn't get written off by Jesus. 
we share the gospel because it's not your eloquence and your, your wherewithal, your ability, your, your verbiage, your delivery that saves people. It's the gospel. And it converted Paul. And my goodness, this would have been an encouragement to the church in Rome. They're looking at saying, whoa, this guy wanted to kill us. And now the thing he wanted to kill us for is the thing that converted him. It's the thing that won him over. This is seriously encouraging. This would be a huge encouragement for those in that church. One of the main hurdles when you're sharing the gospel that we've already talked about a little bit is that people are often indoctrinated with other beliefs. You're not called to just share the gospel with people who already love the gospel. We've got to wake up to that reality. You're sharing the gospel with people who are indoctrinated, sometimes generation over generation, with other beliefs, deep-seated beliefs. We, don't, we shouldn't just look at their beliefs as, well, that's just shallow and that's just silly. You just need Jesus. Their dads, 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 dad believe that. It's a generational thinking and heart movement. They're all in where they're at. We shouldn't be flippant as we share the gospel. They're indoctrinated in the ways of materialism, racism, paganism in Rome, Judaism, Pharisaism, secularism, sexism, you name it. When we share the gospel with people who don't believe the gospel, they firmly believe other things. Paul describes it as saying, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father's. The traditions of my fathers. Think about people all over the world who celebrate the traditions of their fathers that have nothing to do with God. Guess who has the good news? You do. Don't write them off. Take them the word. It saves people. It converts people who hate Jesus and his people. This would have been such good news for the Jews and Gentiles in the church in Rome. Paul, so extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers. It would be an encouragement for those living in a culture that rejects God's truth, thinks God's truth is silly, thinks God's truth is outdated and archaic, in a culture that finds God's truth offended, in a culture that people who are ministers of the gospel may sometimes twist it to make it say what they want it to say. It would have been an encouragement to know that the gospel could overcome all of it. The gospel, the gospel can overcome every one of those views. Every one of those perspectives, every one of those beliefs, that's what the gospel does. That's why you should be committed to it first, not second or third. So, when did this happen for Paul? When did this call to gospel work? Not just call to be a believer, but call to the work. That's what he's talking about. When did that happen? When was he set apart in verse 15? In Galatians 1 says it. We already read it, but look at it again. But when he who had set me apart before I was born... When was Paul called to the gospel work? Before he was born. I was reading Calvin's notes on this because, you know, I read that and I thought, well, is that just talking about his salvation and being a chosen one of God or, or, uh, or is this talking about actual work? And, and I, I really wanted to understand it before I stood up here and delivered it to you because I didn't want to tell you something that I, I just felt, you know, like would be a neat fact. And so I went and I was reading different people's notes, and I actually read Calvin's notes on this detail. Because I'm like, if anyone's going to push the predestination agenda, it's going to be old John Calvin, right? As I read his notes on this detail of Paul's calling, Calvin states that 
those who think this refers only to Paul's salvation and not to the actual gospel work are taking the predestination thing a little far. If John stinking Calvin says you're taking the predestination thing a little far, you probably are. You probably are. So, so why does that matter? Well, what's the point? Well, this is, this is why it matters. Paul's commitment to the gospel is a commitment to the reality that before he was born, God set him apart for work and then shaped him for that work while he was in the womb for the forward movement of the kingdom of Christ. The work of the gospel goes along with the call to the God of the gospel. No one is ever a chosen one who has no work to do. There's no sit around on my lazy saved rear end option. It's work. Whether you're a believer who's six years old or you're a believer who's in your 90s, everyone in between, if we're called to the gospel of God, we're called to the work of the gospel of God. And we have to be committed to the gospel first to do the work. That's what Paul is showing us here. The work goes with the call. And the encouragement is, if you're sitting there thinking, ah, I can't do that work. I'm scared someone's going to dislike me. I'm scared I'm going to be maligned. I'm scared I'm going to be attacked for my beliefs. God fits you for the work according to his plan from before you were conceived. At least that's what Paul believes in this moment. We haven't gotten to the part about us yet, so, so we'll get there. The work goes with the call, and God fit Paul for the work according to the plan that he had before Paul was ever conceived. So, the application part. What does it mean for us? We've, we've established what it means. We've established these details. Of for Paul, being committed to the gospel means he was a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. That's what the text is saying. That's, we've, we've explored what it means. So what does it mean to us? So, there's... A couple little application points that I encourage you to write down and we're going to think through them. For us, being committed to the gospel of Christ means regularly applying the gospel realities. Go to that next slide if you haven't already. You're so awesome back there in the booth. For us, being committed to the gospel of Christ means regularly applying the gospel realities of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Guys, this is massively important. I even, I was going over my notes and I thought, we'll do the camp thing. And we'll, this section, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And then we'll get everybody all fired up because I don't want anybody to forget these four details. This is the gospel. This is our application of what we just heard. I ask you to think through when you hear these things, when you hear things about creation, when you hear things about fallen people and need for redemption, when you hear things about the reality of redemption, when you hear things about consummation, which means the eternity in which we will be wrapped up in our Lord. Write those things down. I hope you were listening for those things as we went along. Because this is the gospel. You know, some of the questions I had last week, are you just talking about the part about Jesus? Are you talking about evangelism? A lot of times we think about the gospel in terms of redemption only. A lot of times we think about the gospel in terms of redemption only. We, we think, yes, that's the good news. Jesus came into the world, and he died for sins, and he rose again, and he's a good God. He's alive. That's good news. But what we have to see is that the, that, that redemption part has bookends. And what's in front of the redemption part is creation. That's part of the gospel. You, you won't ever believe redemption if you cannot believe in a creator and his creation. 
And then what comes shortly after creation was the fall, which creates the need for a redeemer. And then the gospel doesn't just stop there. There was a great book written, God is the Gospel, because it's like, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you need Jesus, you're a sinner, you need Jesus. Someone's like, okay, cool, I'm a sinner, I need Jesus, I accept Jesus. Now what? Is there anything after the redemption part? And the redemption part leads to consummation, which is eternal bliss with our Lord. The goal is to get to God. That's why Jesus died. God is the gospel. These four things help us to apply that daily. And the three things that Paul addresses in his first verse, where he, where he, those three things we've already looked at, we see that commitment to the gospel, listen closely, includes commitment to the reality of a creator and his creation. You can't have gospel without creator and creation. We were created by God in a particular way for his glory. All of the old church catechisms, who made you? God, why did he make you? For his glory. A bunch of our kids know that. It's just, boom, truth. It's right there on the tips of their tongues. He had specific things, specific work in mind as our creator. We are created beings, all of us, whether you believe it or not. In the garden, Adam and Eve were to do the work of God as members of his kingdom before the fall. Some of us don't like to go to work, and some of us have this thought like, yeah, well, I wouldn't have to work if it wasn't for Adam and Eve screwing it up for all of us. No, no, no. In the garden, work existed before the fall. Hard work was the result of the fall. Thorns and thistles and sweat were the result of the fall. I can't imagine what that first just super productive week must have been like. Like, oh, we plant and things grow. Look at that. There ain't no weeds in the garden. I mean, it must have been amazing. But the reality is, Adam and he fell in the garden. They took God's words, the enemy twisted them, and they turned from God, their creator. They moved away from the creation reality of gospel. We acknowledge the fall as part of the gospel story because we had to be purchased and redeemed by the blood of Christ. Redemption wouldn't be needed if there was no fall. And we had to be purchased and redeemed by the blood of Christ. In the same way that God covered Adam and Eve in the skins of an animal when they turned from him, Christians have been covered in the skins of Christ, in the blood of Christ, in the covering of Christ. They've been covered by God. Remember they tried to do the fig leaf thing? That's how we solve our sin, withering fig leaves. If I was wearing a fig leaf suit at the beginning of this sermon, I would be greatly embarrassed by the end of the sermon. Figs wither and dry up and blow away. That's kind of the way we solve sin. We'll just put a Band-Aid on it. And God's like, hey, um, my loving child, um, that's not a good idea. That's not a long-term solution. And he covers them in the skins of an innocent animal. And what we have been covered in is the blood of Christ, our innocent Redeemer. Having been purchased by the innocent blood of Christ, we no longer belong to ourselves. If you're a Christian, you, you need to know you are not your own. You are not your own. If someone asks for our opinion on a cultural issue, we don't have one. Some of y'all are like, oh, hold on. God bless America. I have an opinion and a vote. You don't have an opinion. That, that, that's going to rub some people raw. Just that little comment. I'm on Facebook. I might not be for the next couple of weeks. I'm tired of it. 
But man, I see a whole lot of opinions that don't really care about loving people. I see a bunch of angry people. I see a bunch of sad people. I haven't seen a bunch of really metered responses that are fitting and balanced. We don't have an opinion. We have the gospel. You're not your own. You are owned by Jesus. He paid more for you than you could ever pay. Your opinion doesn't matter anymore. What matters is the gospel. Your opinions should fall from the gospel. Your opinions should be his opinions. Your priorities should be his priorities. This is redemption. We're members of God's kingdom. And just like Paul, we have specific parts to play. When, when I read Paul's calling from before he was born, I thought, well, maybe it was just Paul. I mean, he did a lot. Maybe, maybe Paul was the only one who was called from before he was born. I mean, he, he, he had a pretty awesome life, just fantastic. And then I got to reading, and I went over to Isaiah and Jeremiah, and I saw Isaiah was shaped by God in the womb to be like a polished arrow in, the, in God's quiver so that God could say, all right, time for Isaiah. Pow! And then Isaiah opens his mouth and he was woven together in the womb to have words that he speaks with an ability that cuts deep. That's what happened with Isaiah. With Jeremiah, it was the same way. It says at the very beginning, he formed me in the womb to speak so that I could redeem Israel. So I was like, all right, cool. So maybe it was just the apostles and the prophets, right? Because I mean, they had some pretty important stuff to do. And then I get to 1 Corinthians 12. This is part of our application. Verse 4. Don't turn, you can turn there if you want, but listen. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. So it's not just limited to apostles and prophets. He inspires his gifting and his shaping for the use of you, who he owns, for his kingdom that he rules. And it's particular. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Should we care about the common good? Yes! Because you were given the manifestation of the Spirit for it. You were shaped by God. This means that God has a plan for you from before you were born. And when you were in your mother's womb, he shaped you so that you could go and carry out that plan as being owned by him. That's what it means to be called, to be shaped, to be owned by God. And as we exercise these gifts that he gives us, we usher in the kingdom of God, which is an eternal kingdom. This is the consummation part. You don't just get saved and sit there. we got something we're anticipating and we want as many people to be a part of it as can possibly be. An eternal kingdom. Through the gospel work that is carried out by particularly gifted servants, Revelation 21 states that the kingdom of God will descend upon earth. God will judge the earth and God himself will dwell among his people and make all things new. Creation, fall, Redemption and consummation, those are our gospel realities. And inasmuch as you move away from any of them, there's no heaven. I don't know, the heaven thing, it's hard for me to wrap my head around. You're moving away from the gospel when you say that. You know, a creator, come on, I mean, we've got science, right? You can put your faith in anything. 
right? If you begin to put your faith in anything but a creator who has a created purpose for this crazy little ball in the middle of space, you're moving away from the gospel. So a couple of examples in closing. What does it mean to be gospel people? What, give me a, Scott, give me a tangible example that I can go and apply. Because you just said a lot of words and you said them loud and you said a bunch of them fast because you talk too fast sometimes. I get it. I'm reminded of that after every sermon that I talk too fast. So I try to slow it down. It's exciting stuff, though. So what does it mean, for an example, let's look at marriage. What does it mean to have a gospel marriage? Now, as I share this example, I want you to know ahead of time, this is not how it plays out in the Sutton home every single time there's a conflict. Okay? So I'm going to share an example that is the ideal setting. And I want you to know that sometimes I don't act in the most ideal manner. But this is how we apply the gospel. Let's say you have a... a difference with your spouse. You have some, a conflict with your spouse. Or you're working through uh, to make a decision that's significant. Creation says all spouses are a gift from God. And you go back to creation, when we look at our marriage, we know that God made man and woman in a particular way that is absolutely wonderful and amazing. And they're made and they're fitted to complement one another. And, and they go together in marriage. And they can accomplish things for the kingdom of God in that that are wonderful. We know that if we're looking at creation, fall, redemption, consummation, the first thing is creation. Spouses are a gift from God. Sometimes that can de-escalate a, a, an argument, right? Because you're looking at your spouse thinking, you're the enemy right now. You, I'm, I'm taking you out. You're setting against my kingdom. Your spouse is a gift from God. That's how you apply the creation part of it. Fall, all spouses are sinners. All spouses are sinners. So what you do is you get specific. We love being vague about sin. We don't like being specific. Yeah, of course I'm a sinner. I'm a terrible person. Really, how? Tell me some specifics. And as you're sitting there with your husband or wife, you say, you know what? In this particular area, I'm just being stubborn just stubborn as I can be, because I want my way. Ooh, now we're getting somewhere when we apply the gospel. We're getting specific about sin. Then we get to the redemption part. All spouses need a savior. Well, quit acting like you don't need a savior. And quit acting like your, your spouse is the only one in the room who needs a savior in that moment. Oh, let me remind you the gospel, sweetheart. You need a savior right now. You need Jesus. Both of you do. That's, that's gospel reality. So what does that mean? Well, it means that you look at the redemption that exists in Christ, and you say, he, he, he died to redeem me. I'm not my own. So I'm being stubborn, but that's acting like I'm my own, and I own me, and I do what I want. So if I'm going to apply this redemption aspect of, of the gospel, what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, you know what? I'm being stubborn. If I'm going to put off the old self and put on the new self, and I'm going to walk as, in my redemption... I need to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, and not stubborn. I need to be a peacemaker, knowing that peacemakers are blessed. Then you get to the consummation part. All spouses are eternal. Marriage is temporary. That's something we know from creation. Marriage is temporary, and it's made to represent the relationship. It's a mystery, as it's called in Scripture, that represents the beautiful relationship between the church and God. We are the bride. 
He's the groom. We are anticipating the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so what you say in that moment is, how can we have a marriage that puts on display eternal realities right now in this temporary thing that we're going through? That's how you apply the gospel. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. How does it work with your children? Okay, how are we going to be gospel parents who have a gospel home? If there's something going on with your kids and they come in and they're arguing, you don't just say, quit yelling at each other and then send them out of the room. That's not helpful. Just screaming and saying, zip it, is not helpful. Some of the kids are going, "Uh, did y'all, mom and dad, are y'all paying attention to the pastor? He's got important things to say today. Um, Children are a gift from God. All children are sinners. All children need a savior. All children are eternal beings. So when they come in and they're arguing and they're treating each other poorly, rather than just screaming at them, take 60 seconds. If you want to time me, start now. You sit and say, kids, who created your brothers and sisters? God. Why did God create you for his glory? In what image did God create you? In his image. Are we being image bearers right now? Okay. Okay, so we know that part of the gospel is the fall. Kids, in what, what sin are you dealing with right now that's getting in the way? And one of your kids might say, I'm being selfish and prideful. Okay, that's good. We're getting specific. Guys, redemption. We all need Jesus. We all need a Savior. How do we apply this? And the way we apply it is by saying, okay, we've got this, this selfishness and this pride. What can we put on? How do we replace that? How do we do what Ephesians says, put on the new self? And with your kid, you sit and you let them answer. And they'll say, well, I need to work on humility and considering others more important than myself. Considering others more significant than myself. Okay, guys, for eternity we'll be with Jesus. How can this be a home where we put on display what's going to happen eternally? Well, let's worship God by obeying him. Okay, let's pray about that. You pray, boom. It didn't take that long, really. But that's how we apply the gospel. These four things, keeping them in mind constantly, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, will help you day to day. You'll be able to begin to pick out verses that are very applicable to your family. As you're saying, okay, I'm working through this with my kids. I'm working through this in my marriage. I'm working through this with a friendship. When you identify the sin and how Jesus aims to redeem it, you have particular verses you can begin to pray through that are specific, that encourage you, they're promises that are foundational to your movement. The final example I'll share, and I asked her if I could share it. On Saturday morning, I picked my daughter up, my nine-year-old daughter, and I'm aware that there are a bunch of kids in here, but this is the world we live in. I pick up my nine-year-old daughter, she gets in the car, and she says, Daddy, did you know that there was a law passed to where a woman can marry a woman? And a man can marry a man. My nine-year-old. Less than 24 hours since the law was passed. I don't hesitate to mention it with our kids in here because you need to talk about the gospel. In that moment, do you flip your lid? Oh, the world's going there, the down the toilet. Here I am trying to be a parent and the government's against me. 
Do you freak out and get mad at your kid for asking an honest question? Or do you apply the gospel? My first question to her was, who created you? God. Why did God create you for his glory? Sweetheart, who created marriage? God. Why did God create marriage? For his glory? Did he have a plan ahead of time? Yeah. So who defines what it is? Our creator. Well, sweetheart, we're fallen. Well, how does our sin affect this? Well, maybe we want to call it what we want to call it. Maybe we want to make it what we want to make it. Okay. How did Jesus redeem us from those tendencies and desires that we have to make things what we want them to be? Well, we should probably return to what his original plan was. We should probably obey him. We should probably do all we can to share the gospel, to not stray from the gospel, to not change the gospel, to not shift the gospel, to not redefine things within the gospel. Okay, and for eternity, what do we know? Well, we know that God's going to be with us and we're going to worship him. Okay, so where are we right now? Same place we were yesterday. We're, we're dedicated and committed to the gospel. We're going to aim to apply it in all things. We're going to walk in it. We're going to stand firmly on it. If you're a parent who's worrying about being a parent in our world, guess what your hope is? It's Jesus. Don't stray from the gospel. It's a timely message. We weren't even going to be in Romans until a few weeks ago, and then look where God has us on this Sunday. You can't orchestrate stuff like that. For Paul, being committed to the gospel meant that he was bought by the blood of Christ, owned by God in Christ, and called by God as an apostle, set apart by God for gospel work from before he was born. For us to walk in this, we must regularly consider and apply the gospel realities of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. Inasmuch as you move away from any four of these things, you move away from the gospel and you move away from God. As well, there is no single personal issue, cultural issue, trial, or significant decision that will not be rightly informed by a commitment to the gospel. That's why we're getting specific about what it is this morning. Because you, you can sound flippant by saying, oh, well, this trial we're going through, this thing, this decision, it, we just need Jesus, we just need the gospel. Okay, great, that's true. What does that mean? You go through these four things, and for a long time, it is delivered every single time. For a long time, it is delivered every single time. This is the good news, the message that we have from God. And like Paul said over and over and over and over again, it is the power. He says in, in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of this. I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. I hope you believe that too. Let's pray. Lord, I confess that um, I don't always walk in the things I preached this morning. I have fears, I have selfishness, I have fleshliness that gets in the way of walking in the gospel and being genuinely committed to it. 
Lord, I pray this morning that we would be mindful of our fallenness and mindful of the hope we have in Christ. On a week where it would be easy to look and consider the speck in others' eyes, help us to be mindful of the log in our own eyes. Help us to trust you enough to do the work of the gospel, to remain committed to it even when it's hard and confusing. As we take the supper, Lord, I pray that you find the committed people anticipating what we know to be certain. Pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. As we distribute the elements, we take the supper every week, and as we distribute these elements, just very simply, I want to encourage you this morning to think of particular areas of your life where the gospel needs to be applied. As we pass out these elements that represent the sacrifice that was paid by Christ, the, the body and the blood, I want you to think over particular areas of your life where the gospel must be applied. It's a privilege to take this supper every week together. We look back all the way to creation, knowing that God has a plan for his people, knowing that that plan thus far has been wonderful and will be until he returns to take us home. Rome is a tourist attraction. The gospel moves forward. Laws have been passed, cultures have come and gone, and the gospel remains. Jesus is risen. That's what we're celebrating. It's not a fairy tale, guys. It's, it's as real as real gets. We have a lot to celebrate and we have a lot to do. We have work that we're called to, that we're fitted for. And we know that at the end, our Lord will be with us because of what he did in Christ. And we'll celebrate that eternally. I hope that informs every concern we have, every fear we have, every trial we have, every decision we have to make. So as we take the supper, we're thankful for our creator. We're admittedly fallen. We're redeemed by Christ alone. We're anticipating eternity with God. Take and eat. Take and drink. Before I pray for the offertory, I just want to say if, if you're here this morning and you want to talk to someone about these gospel details, because I've shared the gospel this morning in a lot of detail, and if you're hearing that and the gospel is doing work that's far beyond what I or anyone else can do, and you want to talk to someone about that, I encourage you, um, I'll be available after the service. Um, our life group shepherds, uh, deacons, elders will be available. If you're a visitor who wants more information on church and other details, we have a visitor center right um, near the coffee pots in the other building where someone's there to give you some information and even a little goodie bag just to encourage you and welcome you. But we're available. And as we preach the gospel, we will remain available to anyone who wants to talk about it. Let's pray. Lord, as we continue in song and continue in the offertory, I pray that your children are wholehearted and that we will aim at your glory. Help us to be obedient in all things. You are so good to us, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Just in closing real quick, I mentioned in the sermon that um, the word says, think over what I say and the Lord will give you understanding. And so we don't have um, Sunday schools on Sunday mornings here. What we do is we have life groups that meet throughout the week. And we encourage you to be a part of a life group, to get plugged in, to even go vi- begin to visit and figure out what works best. They're on almost every night of the week. They're in a bunch of different uh, locations geographically. And so um, I encourage you to try to find a life group because by God's design, we all meet together and then we go and meet in smaller groups. And then there's times where you have alone time with the Lord in your devotions where you're working through things. And so we have to think over the things we've seen. I, my hope this morning is that you are encouraged at what you're a part of. I hope you're encouraged at the gospel story. I hope you're encouraged by gospel truth that applies to absolutely everything. And so my hope is that in that encouragement, you would go and walk in it and share it with others and make sure you're rightly a part of a community that is working through these details in accountability and living life together. Y'all stand up and I will pray for us and we'll be dismissed. Lord, we are thankful for this time. Help us to be people who are genuinely committed to the gospel first so that we can serve others in love, so that we can persevere through trial, so that we can stand firm in discouragement and fear. Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. And this morning we got to see from the word um, so much of how that happens, so much of the details of your greatness. Thank you for a time in worship. Thank you for a time taking the supper. Thank you for a time in giving of our offerings. You are so good. We have access to you because of Christ, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Y'all have a great week.